among men in the church. Um, in this particular survey, close to a third of the pastors admitted that having great difficulty and great struggle. We're men, and God has made us with a sexual drive. Have you noticed this? <laughs> Not a sexual drive, it's a sexual, you know, drive. I mean, it's pretty strong. And uh, to learn how to, to, learn how to uh, take that captive is, is a struggle, and it is a process. And if it's something that you struggle with, you should not, uh, um, you should not be shamed into uh, not seeking help. It's interesting to me that uh, James says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There are some sins that are habitual that we, uh, that we get into. And what, what, happens, what happens with guys is we'll, we'll get into something and we're embarrassed and we're ashamed and we pray and ask God to forgive us. And we, we know that he, he does forgive. And we think to ourselves, I'll never do that again. And then we get pulled into it, we do it again. And it's a vicious cycle. And you will never break that cycle by yourself. That's why James says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. The two are stronger than one. There's some things, you know, the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. So uh, this, this is a great thing, this, this new ministry that's starting up. And, uh, and I will tell you this, the enemy is not pleased with things like this because it's how guys get, uh, it's how guys get help and it's how they get uh, encouragement and uh, it's how they hook up with someone they can trust, and the Bible says the two are stronger than one. Well, let's pray as we begin tonight. Father, thank you that you have indeed, by the gift of your Son, set us free uh, from our sins. And by your Spirit, you have given us the power, Lord, uh, to live in the freedom of sin. Not, not that we'll be sinless on this earth. But that, Lord, we can walk and we can grow and we can mature and we can put off the old, the old things and we can put off childish things. And that's our desire. That's why we're here. That's why every guy is here. We want to grow and we want to develop and we want to become more mature in you. We want to know you better. We want to integrate your truth into our lives. Uh, we, are, we are not uh, satisfied with the status quo. We are not satisfied with just staying in neutral, and the fact of the matter is we never stay neutral. We're either progressing or we're digressing. So, Father, we, uh, we ask that uh, as we come here tonight from a variety of different situations, from a number of different circumstances, from, uh, uh, well, as many guys in the room, that's how many different issues and how many different circumstances are here. Lord, that's why we always come to you, and that's why we always come to your word, uh, because you have what we need. You, you told us very clearly, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Lord, we open your word, because when we open your word, we have, we have the words of the one who saved us, and the one who tells us how to live life. Instruct us, encourage us tonight. Lord, our defenses that might be up, we pray that you'd take them down. 
give us what we need. Just as you gave the Israelites every day what they needed as they wandered in the wilderness, you do the same for us. That's why we're here. You've never failed us, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's graduation season. Um, I uh, have never spoken at a high school graduation until last Saturday. And uh, my son Josh graduated, and I at, at a Christian school, and I was asked to give the graduation address. And as I said to the graduates, you have never graduated before. I have never given a graduation speech before. You will never graduate again. I will never give a graduation speech again. <laughs> because they give you 20 minutes, and there's not a lot you can say in 20 minutes. And every graduation I've ever been to, you know, any speech, take Speech 101, it has an introdu introduction, it has a body and a conclusion. Uh, when the guy gives up to give the graduation address, everyone's thinking, how fast will he get to his conclusion? Because he's sort of a token. I mean, there's work to be done, there's business to transpire uh, there, and uh, I mean, the guy's like a hood ornament. I mean, you know, he just, he's there, and, but, but let, let's get to the real stuff. Uh, what do you say to a group of kids that are graduating from high school? Um, up until this point in their lives, their, their parents, um, to the best of their ability, have made decisions uh, that would shape their lives. You graduate from high school and there's a major shift because now the baton is being passed, not completely, not, not totally, but to, uh, to a significant degree, now it shifts from the parents making all the major decisions uh, to them making major decisions. And decisions always have consequences. Um, when you're at a graduation, when you're at a high school graduation, there's a big emphasis on knowledge, isn't there? And the kids that did well with knowledge are the kids that make the speeches. After I did my deal, three different kids got up. The valedictorian, the, uh, I don't even know what they call the other guys. Salatorian and the, uh, the, 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 somebody. Somebody got up, yeah. But, uh, you know, but I'll tell you this, I don't know what you call them, but they were smart. And uh, they handed out all these awards. They handed out uh, cum laude, summa cum laude, all these different things. I remember when I graduated, I, got, I, I was the only kid in my cast to get summa cum flunky. <laughs> or something to that effect. Um, knowledge is a big deal at a high school graduation. What I talk to these kids about, because every high school grad, I don't even remember who spoke at my high school graduation. I just know the guy was long, and I remember the guy was born. That's all I remember. So what do you say to a bunch of kids that are 18 years old? Uh, what I said to them is I'd like, to, uh, I'd, I'd like uh, to give you three ways on how you can ruin your life by the time you're 40. That's what I spoke to them about. <laughs> And what I said to them is, you're 18, and it's amazing that you're 18, but one day you're going to wake up and you're going to be 40. Now, if you're 18, you can't believe that you're going to be 40, but one day you'll be 40. Um, what's really amazing is when you are 40, you can't believe you're 40. <laughs> it's going to come quicker than you think. Um, 
I said, your parents are here. Uh, they graduated from high school. Your parents have, uh, they have acquaintances whom they graduated from high school with who are now 40. And by the time they were 40, they ruined their lives. Uh, it's very easy to ruin your life in a hurry. And here are three ways, here are three ways you can ruin your life by the time you're 40. Um, one, of the, one of the ways that I gave them was to choose knowledge over wisdom. Choose knowledge over wisdom. We live in a culture that uh, worships knowledge. And I said to them, you know, you're getting ready to enter into a new phase of life. Uh, most of you are going off to a secular university. You should understand that a secular university prides itself on being a place of knowledge. But there are more fools per square inch <laughs> on a secular university campus than anywhere else on the face of the earth. And many of these fools have PhDs. Uh, they think themselves to be wise. But the scripture says, professing to be wise, they have become as fools. Why? Because they say in their heart that there is no God. Uh, if you want to get into trouble fast, you choose knowledge over wisdom. Now, how do you get wisdom? Amazing, isn't it, how much the Bible has to say about wisdom? Um, there is a book that's devoted almost exclusively to obtaining wisdom. And interestingly enough, that book of Proverbs is a book. In fact, if you open the Proverbs, and we're in Nehemiah tonight, but we're just setting up Nehemiah, aren't we? Because you see, there, ideas have consequences. And if you choose knowledge over wisdom, you're going to ruin your life. That's true of you as an individual. It's true for me as an individual. It's true for a nation. If a nation chooses knowledge over wisdom, they're going to ruin themselves, which is precisely what happened to the nation of Israel. If you know their history, they ruined themselves. And because of the ruin and because of their own choices, what they did was they, uh, they left God. Uh, God had to uh, save them, and, and what he needed to do was he needed to discipline them harshly. Because lesser measures, which he always institutes, you know, God's discipline always increases incrementally, doesn't it? Because God's a good God and God's a good Father. But if you don't respond on the first pass, it's probably how the way your dad was. If you don't respond on the first pass, the second pass is going to get a little more intense. And then a little more intense. And a little more intense. Uh, finally, they were taken off into exile for 70 years. And they've returned. So... We're going to get to Nehemiah here in just a minute. But Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's a book of wisdom not only for uh, individuals. It would be a, a book of wisdom for, um, for nations. If you have a business, it would be a book that would apply to your business. If you're married, it would apply to your marriage. Interestingly to me, Proverbs um, is not just a set. We, we tend to look at Proverbs, and it's just a set of random Proverbs. Uh, that's how you can look at it. A lot of times we go to Proverbs, sort of like you go to a buffet after church on Sunday. You ever go to one of those buffets? I mean the big ones with the ice sculptures. You ever been to one of those things? I, I, you know, and, and it's, it's $173 a plate, all you can eat kind of thing. I mean, they're somewhat excessive, aren't they? But they're fun, you know. 
And they got everything. They got everything, but there's no way you can eat everything. But you try. <laughs> and what you do is you walk around, and they got the salads, you know. And they got okay, every salad you can think of. They got it. I mean, these are fun deals. <sighs> you know. Then they got the meat over there. They got some guy carving meat. I mean, he's carving roast beef, and he's got turkey and emu. I mean, anything you can think of, this guy's carving it. They got desserts. They got vegetables. They got, they got everything you can think. Well, you know, now, you're a guy. So what you do is you load up on everything you can possibly load up on. But what's, fun, what's really fun is to watch women go through buffets. Because what they do is they prance around, and they'll take just a little, they'll just take, and their finger's always like this isn't it? And they'll t just give me a, a little of this. And then they prance over here. And then they just get a, a little of that, you see. And then they get, oh, oh, let me just have a little. That's how we go to Proverbs. We go to Proverbs like it's a buffet line. And we'll take a little out of chapter 11. And then we'll go to 16, and we'll take just a verse out of 16. Um, it's connected is what I'm trying to say. Uh, look at the opening words of Proverbs. Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior. He's not talking about Harvard here. He's not talking about Yale here. He's not talking about the New York Times. He's talking about wisdom. He's not talking about nonsense. He's not talking about foolishness. He's talking about wisdom. Um, righteousness, justice, and equity to give prudence to the naive. Now catch this. To the youth, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand the proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's it. When you lose the fear of the Lord, you have a defective and a deficient knowledge, which is where we are in this country in the education system. We've lost the fear of the Lord, so we have some facts here and there, and we have different tests. But in terms of real genuine knowledge, we've lost it because we have eliminated God um, from the discussion. Here's what I want you to pick up. I want you to pick up that what you've got here, Proverbs is a father instructing his son about how to live life wisely. Note chapter 1, verse 8. Hear my son, your father's instruction. Look at verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you. Huh. Look at verse 15. My son, do not walk on the way with them. Chapter 2, verse 1, my son, if you will receive my sayings. Chapter 3, my son, you guys starting to pick this up? Verse 11 of 3, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. 21, my son, verse 4, or chapter 4, hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. Again in verse 10, hear my son and accept my sayings. All the way through, and, and you know what you can do sometimes is read through Proverbs, and every time you see the term, my son, just circle it. It is a, a book that is chronicling 
the wisdom, the accumulated wisdom of the years from a father to a son and was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, what's sad about Solomon is that he was given a gift of wisdom, but uh, he didn't value the gift. Now, Solomon ruined his own life because he did not read his own book. He wrote it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he didn't hear it, and he didn't do it. So he ruined his life. A tragic thing. Uh, we live in a culture that always, always values knowledge over wisdom. The, the, the scriptures have a completely different take. What does that have to do with Nehemiah? Here's what it has to do with Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 10, and really we're at the end of 9, uh, last week we saw them in worship before God. We saw them in prayer before God. And what's basically happening in, in 9, well, what happened in 8 is you got the emphasis on the Word of God. Ezra opens up the Word. And then in 9, what you have is worship and prayer. And specific, and, and you know, the Word and prayer always go together. One of the things that we noticed about worship last week is that worship involves confession. And these guys had a lot to confess because as a nation, they had valued uh, they had valued knowledge uh, over wisdom. They knew the one true God. They knew him. He had revealed himself to them throughout their history. That's what made them unique. But they did not incorporate that knowledge with wisdom and follow in his way, so as a result, they wound up in ruin. Just as uh, an 18-year-old kid can make choices over the next 10, 15 years and ruin his life, uh, the nation of Israel ruined their lives over the next three, four, five hundred years. Uh, they were sent into captivity, and now they've come back, a remnant in Jerusalem, to rebuild the once great nation that, quite frankly, is just a shell of what they used to be. Um, in chapter 9, they're confessing their sin as they worship. They're confessing their foolishness. And, and you know, there's always a consequence and there's always a cost to being foolish, isn't it? It isn't there. Uh, there, are always, there are always ripples that, uh, that we experience as a result of bad choices. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we'll pick up the end of the prayer because this kind of captures it. Uh, if you're familiar with 9, if you were here last week, you kind of get a history of the nation. And the bad choices that were made when they uh, refused to follow God. It would have been wisdom to follow God. In verse 36 of chapter 9, it says this, Behold, we are slaves today. As to the land which thou didst give to our fathers to eat of its fruit and bounty. Now, they're, they're standing on Jerusalem. That land was given Abraham. That land belongs to them. It belongs to them today. They say, well, why do you say they're slaves? Because they are still underneath the authority of the king of Persia. They're only there by his permission. Uh, they say, behold, we are slaves on it. Verse 37, and its, abundance and its abundant produce is for the kings. It wasn't meant for the kings, it was meant for them. Whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. There was foolishness. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. 
And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, uh, and our priests. Uh, what's happening here, if you've been with us in our study, you know one of the things about Nehemiah, and one of the key things is, is that they came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Now they had come back in stages. Um, Zerubbabel had come back, and under him they had built a temple. Nothing like Solomon had, but it was a temple. Then Ezra came back, and what he did, he began to teach the people the law. Because you can't have a society without law, and you can't have a society without morals, and you have to have some kind of foundation or a society will fall apart. I think it was John Adams that said in regard to our nation and our constitution that, uh, that our democracy is for a good and righteous people. But what happens when you lose righteousness? Well, then you begin to fall apart. And then you begin to wither. You begin to get defeated, not from some outside enemy, but you begin to fall apart from inside. That's what happens. Um, they are looking for a new start. They've got the temple. They've got the law. Nehemiah has come, and in spite of their enemies, they have rebuilt the wall, and now there's protection. Uh, now they can start again. Now they can begin to build this nation. But what these guys need is they need a new start. You know, at some point in all of our lives, we need a new start. Now, why do we need a new start? Because at some point in our lives, we screw up. Um, there's not a one of us in here who, if we had the opportunity, wouldn't go back through our lives and recapture decisions that we have made. Because uh, <laughs> we, we've made some doozies. We've, every one of us in here, we made some bad moves. Man, if we could take those babies back, we'd take them back in a minute. But we can't take them back. The great thing about the Lord is that when we come to Him in brokenness, when we come to Him in repentance, when He moves us in our hearts, when we come to Him, there is forgiveness, there's mercy, there's compassion, there's grace. He's the God of the fresh start. That's what He specializes in. Uh, these guys needed a fresh start. And, and they were so serious about this fresh start that they were going to put it in writing. It's significant. They were going to write it down. That's how big of a deal this was. Uh, you know, when something's important, when something's really important, somebody will say, let's put it in writing. Let's put it in writing. Now, why is that? Well, it's because if it's down in writing, then it's crystal clear and nobody can miss it. Everybody understands what's being agreed to. Everybody understands what the terms are. Everybody understands five years down the road or ten years down the road when things get fuzzy, everybody can go back and read the document and say, this is what we agreed to. Uh, that's what these guys are. They are reestablishing the covenant. Uh, not that God ever left them, but that they left God. Uh, they are going back to the, uh, to the original intent of the covenant and they're saying, Lord, we want to sign up for this again. Because we did this wrong for a real long time. We need a new start. We need your favor. You see, they got the wall, they got the temple. But, but it, it has to be something in their hearts. It has to be something in their lives. You see, not just an external change. It's something, uh, it's something that is an, an internal change. You know, as we go through life... Um, 
we, uh, we mature and we grow up. Uh, that's, that's the hope, isn't it? There are different paths that we can take. Usually, usually in a man's life, somewhere in the early years, it's not uncommon for a man to take uh, what we could call the path of indulgence. The path of indulgence. What's the path of indulgence? Well, that's where you go and you satisfy all your, all your passions and all your drives and all your desires. But um, that's always a dead-end street. Uh, the longer you stay on the path of indulgence, uh, the quicker you're going to need a new set of tires. You know what I'm talking about? Because it's a rough road. It's a hard way to live. Uh, you're you're going to need to change out your shocks real quick. You're probably going to break an axle or two. Uh, the path of indulgence is you just desire, you, you just indulge whatever your heart desires. It's a foolish way to live. Uh, it, it costs us something. Uh, it ruins our lives and it ruins the lives of others. There's another path. Uh, the path of indifference. Uh, that's different than, than indulgence. What's indifference? Well, it's apathy. Oh, it's apathy. I don't know and I don't care. That's apathy. You see? Uh, it's just indifference. You resign yourself. At some point in life, you, you, uh, what can happen is when you go down the road of indulgence and you ruin your life, you can then become very easily become indifferent because what happens to you is you feel that there's no way out. You feel that there's no way. Uh, you, you are in so deep you can never climb out of this and so you begin to get indifferent and you begin to get apathetic. Um, I, that's what happened to Israel, quite frankly, if you look at their history. Uh, what God intends for us to be and what God intended for Israel to be, he intends for us to take the path of influence. Because the fact of the matter is, we are made and designed by God. Every guy in this room, he wants your life to influence somebody else's life. That's Proverbs, isn't it? What's Proverbs all about? It's a father influencing a son. It's a if you read Deuteronomy 6, it's a father influencing a son and the grandson. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 takes it to the next generation. It says, this is the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, Moses says so that you might do them in the land which you are going to possess, so that you and your son and your grandsons. God has designed every guy in this room. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you do. I don't care what your gifts are. You know what we tend to do? We always tend to look and compare ourselves to people who have more gifts than we do. That's a big mistake. That's a big mistake. We, we tend to depreciate ourselves. We, we, we tend to minimize the influence and impact that, that God has in store for us because we look at people who, to us, have more impact and have greater range than we do. Forget them. Forget them. They got their own set of issues. They got issues in their life you don't know anything about. God has something for you to do. God has influence that he wants you to exert. Uh, if you're on the path of indulgence, uh, you will influence, but it'll be wrong influence. If you're on the path of indifference, you become a man who's just resigned 
You've resigned. You've checked out in every area of life. You're not going to affect anybody because you become passive. God wants us to become people of influence. It's tragic when, when we lose our ways. It's tragic. And it always has ripple effects. I've got an article here written on March 3rd of this year in the Sporting News. You guys read the Sporting News? I don't either. I, but I found this article. Here's what it says. Written by Tom Dinehart. Now remember, this is March 3rd. Mike Price is all settled in as the new coach at Alabama. He even has a house. Though some say he got a little something extra with it. We bought a haunted house, Price says. This was on March 3rd. Because I bought Francione's house. Someone said it's bad karma. I say if it has 10 wins, I'll take it. Now, that has a little bit more meaning than it did on March 3rd. Because you see, uh, on March 3rd, he was all settled in as the coach of Alabama. Uh, now, Mike Shula is settled in as the coach of Alabama. Uh, Mike Price, who had had quite a career at Washington State. I grew up on the West Coast. Washington State. The guys who were good football players on the West Coast when I played, you either went to SC or you went to UCLA. If you were smart, you went to Stanford. Uh, uh, if, you quite, if you didn't quite cut it there, you'd go to, you'd go to, uh, you'd go to Cal. And, and then if you couldn't cut it in the California schools, you'd go to Oregon or you'd go to Oregon State. But I mean, who wants to go up there? You know, I mean, really. I mean, it's horrible up there. I mean, it just rains. And uh, a few guys would go to Washington because uh, they had a pretty good program at Washington. But nobody, nobody went to Washington State. Nobody. Pullman, Washington. You don't, you don't ever want to visit Pullman, Washington. <laughs> I mean, it's in the middle of nowhere. It, 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 I mean, it, it was a joke. I mean, you just knew if you played Washington State, you were going to beat them. And then Mike Price took over. And uh, they, they started cleaning house. In the Pac-8 and the Pac-10, you see. Um, so Price went to Alabama. And with tears, he told his players he really didn't want to leave, but it was such a great opportunity, he could not afford to leave. And when he got to Alabama, he said, I want to be the second greatest coach in Alabama history. Well, he didn't make it. And you guys know the story. Um, uh, now, why didn't he make it? He had, he had it handed to him, big time. Well, as soon as he got there, apparently he got on the wrong path. He got on the path of indulgence. Now, he, he was given a $10 million contract that he didn't sign. See, not only do you want it in writing, but you want to sign it. He didn't... Uh, he got it in writing, but he didn't sign it. Uh, but he chose the path of indulgence. Apparently, apparently, the episode that happened at this golf tournament was not the first episode. Because the president of the University of Alabama, according to reports I've read, warned him because he was buying drinks for college co-eds in Tuscaloosa and then inviting them up to his room. Now, that's not a good move. 
because there's nobody more visible in the state of Alabama than the guy who coaches the football team. Uh, that's the path. That's the path of indulgence. Um, and here's a guy that ruined. I mean, he, he ruined himself. Uh, you would hope somebody would learn from that. But when I saw his, uh, I, I saw the press conference, and I saw him get up, and I saw him um, express regret. Then, in the next breath, I saw him assail the president for not giving him a second chance. That was, that was not the move to make. Uh, a lot of highly visible people have gone down. This is becoming a more uh, frequent affair, isn't it? So who was the guy the year before that was hired at Notre Dame? He didn't, he didn't coach a game either, did he? What was his name? George somebody. Uh, something happens. You see, at the moment when it ought to be the shining moment, these guys go down. Why? Because there's no wisdom. There's a lot of knowledge. These guys are at the top of the knowledge curve in terms of their specific profession, but there's no wisdom. See, that's why wisdom is to be valued more than knowledge. Um, and you know what's tragic? A guy in that kind of position can have tremendous influence. I know guys, you may know guys, I know guys that played for Bear Bryant. Now, you know, if you ever go to Tuscaloosa, I, 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 I preached one Sunday morning at First Baptist Church at Tuscaloosa. And the choir comes out in robes and helmets. <laughs> I mean, this is, you're talking a different culture here. I, I'm exaggerating, but not much. And uh, you drive over to the athletic department, and you drive in on, on Paul Bryant Drive. And you walk into the Paul Bryant athletic facility, and it's Paul Bryant. And, and if you've ever talked to someone who played for Coach Bryant, the word that comes out is influence. It was in, he influenced those guys. Uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't a perfect man. But I'll tell you what, he impacted a lot of young men. Um, but when you find yourself on the path of indulgence, or the path of indifference, uh, you're going to influence, but you're going to influence in the wrong way. <sighs> Nehemiah here, uh, Nehemiah is a leader. And he, throughout this book, he has been influencing these people, along with Ezra, to move them towards a love of God and an obedience of his commandments. Uh, the, the people understand their history. The people understand the sin that has ruined the nation, but they're looking for a new start. So what happens is, beginning with what we just read in chapter 9, verse 38, now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. And then beginning with chapter 10, you read down, you read down through this passage, and you basically have 84 names that are listed. People who put their names to the, uh, to the dotted line who were signing off that, Lord, we are reinstituting the covenant. We want a new start. We want a fresh start because we want to become a nation again of influence. We want to become the nation that we were always meant to be. Um, there are interesting things, and we're, we're going to kind of uh, eyeball 
these next couple of chapters because there are some real highlights here that, that demonstrates the condition of their heart because, because, you see, what they're doing here is they're making a commitment. Throughout life, we are called to make commitments. Uh, we're called to make commitments in, uh, in marriage. We're called to make commitments with our word. We're called to make commitments with our integrity. Uh, the way that you know that someone's commitment is real is that you're going to see the fruit of the commitment. Uh, to the Pharisees, John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. If someone is genuinely repentant, you're going to see the evidence that they're repentant. Uh, these people were not only repentant, but these people are signing off on a new commitment, uh, on a new covenant. Now, let, let me show you three or four ways. I'm going to show you five ways they did this. <sighs> Number one, uh, they signed their commitment. They've already touched on this. They were so serious, they wrote it down, and they signed their names to it. Uh, they wanted the Lord to know. And now, the, the Lord reads, reads hearts, but... but you see, when you put your name down, when you sign off on something, when you initial something, uh, it's, it's your word. Uh, it, it, it is upheld in a court of law. Uh, it, signifies, it signifies that you did this with, with full knowledge and with full intention. Uh, they demonstrated their commitment. The leaders did this by signing and saying, Lord, we want to follow you. We want to establish a new nation. We want to walk in your ways. Uh, the commitment was to obey the word of God because what got them into the trouble was that they wandered from the word of God. Um, you know, sometimes I feel like a broken record in here. I, I, I do. Because um, um, I'll, I'll say things in here that I've said before. But, uh, I mean, my dad used to do that. Uh, to me, he'd say things that you know he'd said before, and kind of thing. My mother did that, and most of my teachers did that. Uh, somewhere I read that repetition is the mother of learning. One of the key chapters in the Old Testament, and this is what I'm referring to when I say I've said this before, is Deuteronomy 28, where God said to the people of Israel, He said, "If you obey me, if you follow me, I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. But if you..." disobey me, and go after the other gods, I will curse you. And the curses were three times longer than the blessings. And do you know what they did historically? They disobeyed him. And they ruined themselves, and they ruined their families, and they ruined their lives unnecessarily. It didn't have to happen. What these guys are doing is signing off that's why all these guys sign this thing. They're signing the contract, basically saying, Lord, we're going to obey you. Lord, we're going to follow you. Lord, we need a new start. That's a wise thing to do. You know, when we get ourselves in alignment with God and His Word, that's the wisest thing you can ever, that's the wisest move you can ever make in your life. You just start aligning yourself with the Word of God. Uh, uh, Psalm 23 says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, 
but Isaiah says, all of us, like sheep, have gone what? Astray. We have turned each one to his own way. Here's the path that Christ wants me to walk. It's the best path. It's, it's the path that uh, brings good into my life. But, but all of us, we go astray. We think we know better. We might go the path of indulgence. We might get into indifference. But here's the right path. The way we begin to get our lives back in gear is to align ourselves with the Lord and align ourselves with his word. It's real simple stuff. So you, you're pickup, you're, you're driving out some pasture somewhere, and you get back on your driveway, and it just, what's the problem? It's out of alignment. So what do you do? You get it aligned. That's what we do with our lives. These guys are signing off. Say, Lord, we're aligning ourselves to you. So they signed, which indicated their commitment. Here's the second thing. To prove their commitment, they separated themselves from the surrounding people. They separated themselves. Uh, if you notice, uh, now, I didn't give you the passage on the first one. They signed their commitment. That's verses 1 through 27 in verse 10, okay, in chapter 10. Secondly, they separated themselves to prove their commitment. Now, that's verse 28. Let me read that. Now, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath, just like Deuteronomy 28, to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of, our, uh, of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. Now then they specify what they're separating themselves from. Catch verse 30. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. It was a common practice uh, in this day and for centuries afterwards uh, to create a political alliance by marriage, to create a business alliance by marriage. Uh, they didn't marry necessarily for love. They, they married for uh, improvement, uh, political gain, political improvement, political peace, political posturing, business networks, this kind of thing, you see, it was a common practice. But they say, Lord, we're not going to do that because you told us not to do it. We're not supposed to intermarry with other nations. God wanted them to be a pure nation because the problem was when they intermarried with other nations, then they go after their gods. That's exactly what happened to whom? Solomon, the guy that wrote Proverbs. So, so, so Solomon departs from wisdom and starts doing this alliance thing. He didn't need an alliance. You don't need an alliance. If he had a trusted God, God would God have, listen, my God, what did God do for him from day one? He blessed this guy beyond his wildest dreams. So why would God stop doing that? God wouldn't stop doing it. But see, he thinks, well, I got to go marry this guy and get to, he didn't need that. All he needed to do was to obey God. So he breaks down and he marries this guy, he marries another. So how many gals did he marry? 700. 700. Because once you, st once you start, what's going to stop you? 
see just alliance after alliance. Plus, he had 300 concubines. You can't handle one woman. You talk about stupid. You talk about screwing up your life. Why would you want to get involved with 700 women? You know, he could have used it, huh? Yeah. And you know, it sounds like, quite frankly and, and very sadly, that, that this coach, Mike Price, could have used this class. Because apparently, there was a trail, you see, that he was able to cover. Because who ever heard of Mike Price? How many guys in this room in Texas heard of Mike Price before he went to Alabama? You can walk around Washington State, uh, and they don't know who you are, and you're the coach. But Alabama's another story, you see. Um, so they, they, they say, Lord, we're going to separate ourselves in marriage. We're going to only marry our daughters to covenant boys. Sir. Sure he was. You bet he was. And you know, sons always try to outdo their fathers, don't they? And he did. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, David had somewhere between uh, eight, it's a little sketchy, eight wives, 12 wives maybe. Yeah. You know, that's just what boys do. Increase in horses or in chariots. David never did that. And then it says he's not to have more than one wife. And David went ahead and violated that. Um, I, I did a chapter one time on David and, and uh, Solomon. And uh, one of the principles I came up with was that sin, I didn't come up with it, I heard it one time. But I put it in the book and didn't give anybody credit. Because <laughs> I couldn't remember who said it. But one of the principles was, Sin will always sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. See, Solomon had no intention when he started out that he'd marry seven hundred women. But see, it always takes you further, always. Oh, and sin always costs you more than you wanted to pay. That's how sin works. You see, isn't that what happened to this price guy? He's just looking a little for a little fling the other night. What did it cost him? Everything. Yeah, ten million and a lot more. Uh, so, so they say, Lord, we are going to separate ourselves from the pagans in terms of marriage. We're not going to give our kids in marriage. You know what's interesting? We're still supposed to separate ourselves in marriage. The church is. Uh, uh, the scriptures tell us uh, very clearly that we are not uh, to be yoked together unequally. Uh, we're told that in 2 Corinthians. Uh, in, in uh, is it 1 Corinthians 7, that a woman in the church, a woman who's a believer, and her husband dies, she's free to marry, but Paul says, only in the, what? Only in the Lord. See, believers are to marry believers. We separate ourselves. When you get married, when we got married, we, we did our vow thing. Uh, and part of the vows, the old classic vows, 
there's a line in there that says, forsaking all what? Others. That's called separation. You see? Uh, they separated themselves, if you read down through 10, they also separated themselves in regard to the Sabbath. Verse 31. And, and the reason I bring this up, guys, is that this is demonstrating the authenticity of their commitment. Our commitment is always lived out. Our, our commitment is always proven. Not by what we say, but by what we do. And as for the peoples of the land, this is verse 31, who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego, forego the crops of the seventh year in the, exact, in the exaction of every debt. Uh, the, the crops of the seventh year regards to the sabbatical year, and the exaction of every debt goes to every 50th year when there was the year of Jubilee and they forgave all debts. Uh, their fathers had, quite frankly, never practiced that, although they were commanded it by God. They say, Lord, we're going to do this. We're going to get in alignment with you. Uh, uh, God created in six days, and God rested on the seventh. If you read Exodus 31, God told them as a people, I want you to rest on the seventh day. I don't want you doing business. I don't want you interacting. I want you to trust me on the seventh day that I'll provide for you and provide for your needs. So in order to demonstrate their commitment, that's what they did. You know what's interesting about visiting Israel? You go there. Uh, the whole nation of Israel shuts down Friday night at 6 p.m. I mean, it's shut, it's sh it's shut and tight. It's, it's as tight as a drum. Nothing's open. Uh, when, when you're on tour in Israel, and you, know, you get up in the morning, they give you breakfast and all this stuff, and then you go in there one day, and it's pretty they're great breakfast, and they lay it all out. And you walk in there on the Sabbath, you go, what is this? Because everything's changed, because it's the Sabbath. From Friday at 6 until Saturday at 6, it shuts down. But at 6.01, it's party. <laughs> you see? But they took their day off because God commanded them. Uh, their fathers didn't do it, but they're showing their commitment. Let me show you something else here. Um, they supported their commitment financially. Financially. Now you're talking about wallets. Now you're talking about checkbooks. Look at verse 32. We also placed, now remember, these guys signed this document. And here's what they're committing themselves to do. Uh, we also placed ourselves under obligation. They placed themselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Uh, for the showbread. For the, in other words, they had, it took money to pay for the worship of the temple, the sacrifices, the grain, all the, they all said, we're behind it. We will not let this thing fall into arrears. It was a financial commitment. Verse 34, they even thought about the wood because they had all these sacrifices. They're going to cast lots because there's got to be a fresh supply of wood. These guys are getting down to the details. When, um, you know, when we get ourselves in alignment with the Lord and the Lord starts working in our lives, it's amazing how God starts impacting details in our life that didn't used to be a big deal. The things that you wouldn't think a thing about, you think a thing about. Because you see, it comes out. It shows your commitment. Um, my son John, I don't think John would mind me 
saying this. I haven't asked him. I should ask him. Would he mind? I don't think he would. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I, I, I think it's okay. I'll square it with him later and we'll destroy the tape. <laughs> John goes to Biola University. It's a Christian school in Southern California. When you go to Biola, you sign a deal that you won't drink alcohol. Well, spring break, he's going with a bunch of guys to uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland and a bunch of places in Europe. And, uh, and one of the guys was saying, you know, some of the greatest breweries in all the world are in Prague. They're going to be in Prague a week. And so John calls me up. He said, Dad, I may never get another chance to go there. And I said, well, you're right. You may not. And uh, he said, but I signed this deal that I wouldn't do it. I said, okay. He said, what do you think I ought to do? I said, well, what do you think you ought to do? <laughs> because that's the issue. It's not what I think. It's what he thinks. And he's working this through. And, you know, we talked 20 minutes, and then he calls me the next day. He said, I went and talked to the dean today, Dad. I talked to the dean about it. I said, yeah? What did he have to say? He said, well, uh, he, said, he said, if I did it, they wouldn't throw me out of school. I said, well, OK. That's good. Uh, I said, are you going to do it? He said, I don't think I am. I said, okay, good. I said, well, the test is going to be when you get over there. Because didn't you say your friends wanted to go over there and try that particular beer that's about 600 years old? He goes, yeah. I said, okay. And uh, he went, and he came back. And he said, Dad, I didn't drink it. I kept my word. I said, you know what, John? That's great. That's great. God will honor you for that. He really will. He'll honor you because you signed, you put your name down, and you kept your commitment. I'm telling you something. That's be I don't care how good that beer was. That's better. You see. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, and he and the dean got drunk. Yeah. Yeah. But isn't it interesting, though, guys? Seriously, isn't it interesting how, the, how, how it begins to affect the little things, quote, unquote, the little things, which are big things? You see? Yeah, what's another two years if it's 400-year-old beer, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, the point is, it began to affect them financially, and they, and they followed through with it, and they kept it. We've talked about this before. You know, you, you, some of you guys know of R.G. Letourneau, who uh, built these great, big, earth-moving machines and um, massive shovels that could move massive amounts of dirt. Laterno was a guy who uh, couldn't believe how God blessed him, and he just kept giving money, just kept giving it, just kept giving it. Got to a point where, he, where 90 percent of everything that came in, he just kept giving it, and and God just kept giving him more. You know, there's a verse that says, "Give, and it shall be given unto you." Pressed down, shaken together, 
running over. And, uh, and, and you know, he just found that he could not, he could not outgive God. Randy Alcorn talks about him in his little book that uh, Letourneau said, he said this, he says, I shovel it out and God shovels it back, but God has a bigger shovel. Second <laughs> Corinthians 9 says this, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can have a higher standard of living. That's not quite what it says. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. See, Laterno found that out. When God starts affecting us even financially, you're getting in alignment. And, and then he'll start blessing you because he's got your heart and he can give you more. Finances often are evidence of someone's commitment. Uh, I got two more. We're almost done. They uh, they prove their commitment by signing up for the draft. That's chapter eleven, verse one. Now, what kind of draft are we talking about here? It says, "Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine tenths remained in the other cities." Uh, the people come back, they were living all over Israel because the tribes had been given different pieces of land. There, quite frankly, there weren't enough people in Jerusalem. They needed more, so basically, they took one out of every ten to populate the city. And then if you note verse 2, here's why I say they signed up for the draft, and the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Sometimes we get real, real comfortable. And we get things set up. Just, I, I cannot tell you. I, uh, this is funny to me. Over the years, you know, you get to know people and you find out their story and how God's worked in their life. I should have thought, I should have written this down before I came in here tonight. I bet you I could list close to 10 couples that I've met over the years who have said this. You get to know them, you go out to dinner, you talk to them, and... Uh, and here's what I hear them say. We had just built our dream house. And then, <laughs> and then God did something. And God presents an opportunity that, quite frankly, brings with it mixed blessings and mixed feelings because they had just built their dream. You see. And then this comes up. And there are such mixed feelings because we built our dream. Yeah, but God may have another dream. And these couples we've talked to, what they did was they left that dream because God laid out another dream. You see, that's called faith. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Uh, these folks volunteered, and, and, and I'm sure for some of them, I'm sure for many of them, you see, they had a dream set up. They'd been in exile for how many years? Now they're going back to the land, their family land. Go back to the family farm. This is special, yet they volunteer to go to Jerusalem. I got one more for you. They solidified their commitment by dedicating the wall. They solidified their commitment by dedicating the wall. 
That's chapter 12 now, verse 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem. And, from, and then you start getting all this listing. Everybody who shows up. I mean, what you got going on here? See, they completed the wall. They got a parade. You're talking rose parade here. You're talking major celebration. Uh, because, see, what God had put in the heart of Nehemiah when he was the cupbearer to the king of Persia had now become reality. The wall had been rebuilt. And I love verse 31 because it says this. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs. Now, you can read about the choirs and all that in the rest of the chapter, but I want you to note this. I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall. You know why that's significant? Because earlier, his enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah, mocked them for building the wall and they said if a fox was to jump up on it, it would collapse. He gets them all up on the wall. And they gave glory to God. It was a dream uh, that God brought to fruition. Um, you know, throughout our walk with the Lord, there will be times when he will test our commitment. God's always testing us. Doesn't mean, please don't, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You're a believer, but as you're a believer and as you're growing in mercy and grace, God will test you. Do you not test your children as they get older, as you're raising them? Do you not test them in terms of their integrity? Do you not test them in terms of their obedience? Do you not test them in terms of their attitude? And, and you love them and you would do anything for them. But sometimes, if you see a flaw, sometimes if you see a bad attitude, you withhold the reward. Why? Because they're not ready for it. Well, that's what the Lord does for us. You see? He's got us in process. He's got us growing. He's got us developing. Uh, here's the great thing about God. For the guy who comes to him and is looking for a fresh start, and the guy says, Lord, I screwed up this, and I screwed up that, and this and that. But you know what, Lord? I want to align myself with you. There's always a fresh start. And not only is there a fresh start, but Paul said, old things have passed away. All things have become new. That pumps me up. That ought to pump you up. Because that's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, every guy in this room, we've been down a wrong path. Indulgence in different ways. Then we get beat up and we get disappointment. We get in so deep we think we'll never get out. Uh, we, uh, we get absolutely overwhelmed by what we have done and what we have caused and the pain that we have uh, been responsible for. We... Uh, we, we, we get apathetic, we get indifferent because we think there's no escape. And then we find out about you. And we find out about your mercy.
and we find out that you're the God who always makes a way of escape out of any temptation. Lord, you have been so gracious and good to us. You've been so kind to us. Lord, we have discovered your grace and mercy and favor. I would pray tonight for Mike Price. I don't know, Lord, his life, his background, his friends. I don't know anything about this guy. All I know is what I've read. But I do know this. He's broken. Uh, he, uh, he is devastated. Uh, his wife is devastated. His sons who went with him to coach on his staff. Uh, their lives and their dreams are shattered. I pray, Father, for this family that you might enter into their lives and show them the truth of your mercy and goodness and show them that there's a way of escape for forgiveness of sins and that a fresh start is possible. Lord, give this guy more than $10 million. Give him eternal life and his family. Heal his marriage. May he be able to regain trust in his family. And that will only happen, Lord, as he would yield and submit his life to you. That would be a wonderful, wonderful story that probably wouldn't make the New York Times. But Lord, the angels would be rejoicing. Lord, uh, many of us in this room have tasted that. And our lives have never been the same. We have much to be thankful for. Lord, we're grateful that you have put down your mercy in writing for us. And even as we're here tonight, Lord, on our hearts, we just want to say to you, Lord, we're signing off on this. We want to be your men. We want to walk in your ways. And as we do that, we'll become men of influence. We're so grateful. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. See you Wednesday night. Yeah. I'm sorry? Oh. Um, uh, choose popularity over standing alone. That's, that's number two. And the third one, um, the third one was, uh, the third one was uh, be quick to accept a bribe. And what I meant by that, just real quick, we always think bribes in terms of money. But what I, I said to them is, the, the Bible says that he who walks with wise men is wise. If you walk with people that are not wise, you'll find yourself in trouble. And then what they'll say to you is, we can't tell anybody about what's happened. Don't tell the authorities. Uh, and they'll bribe you, not with money, but by withholding their friendship. But if you care about them, and something's... Um, you know, I talked about Watergate. That kind of thing. Actually, I didn't there, but you know what I'm talking about? Don't get involved in collusion. Don't get involved in this. Don't sell your integrity. I talked about the people at Enron that were shackled in handcuffs that last week, I said many of them were valedictorians. Many of them went to the best schools. They had knowledge but not wisdom. And they took a bribe. That wasn't the first bribe they ever took. They had a trail of taking bribes. And the first bribe you'll ever face is I'll withhold my friendship. That's it. Now you're summa cum laude. <laughs> One more. Next week. Oh, same thing. It's getting vilified now. Well, I mean, you know, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. Yeah.